Welcome to Immigrantly, a weekly podcast that features deeply personal conversations about race, identity, multiculturalism, and the general messiness of being human. And today we have somebody special who's going to help us understand the intersection of race, immigration, and sexuality. Dr. Anthony Acampo was raised in Los Angeles as the son, the only son of two Filipino immigrants. He attended Stanford University for comparative race and ethnicity and then went on to receive his master's in modern thought and literature. He eventually received his PhD in sociology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a scholar author and writer Dr. Ocampo focuses on race, immigration, and LGBTQ plus issues. His debut book, Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race, has been recognized by the Los Angeles Times and NPR. His upcoming book, Brown and Gay in LA, is slotted to release this September. It chronicles the struggle gay men of color face in order to be seen by their families and the broader society. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. I'm kind of sick of people looking at me as a queer person or a Filipino person and assuming that my experience of racism and homophobia is all that is my entire life experience. And so I I think if I had to write a sequel to this book, I would just write about the mundane everyday experiences of minority groups because that's not everything. That's not the entirety of our experience. I'm so excited to have you on Immigrantly. So welcome. Thank you. So you work at the intersection of immigration, race, and sexuality, right? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Right off the bat, I want to get your take on how do you define race in this context? Yeah, I mean, race is a very complicated issue, right? I'm a sociologist, so we often talk about race as a social construction, which means that everyday people are the ones who define the value and meaning of those identities. Hmm. Throughout the history of the United States, race has actually been used as a, a tool to create hierarchies, as you as you know. Um, white folks are at the top of the hierarchy, enslaved Africans and indigenous folks were at the bottom of the hierarchy. And there was all sorts of logics that were deployed to justify these racial differences. Mm. And of course, over time, you know, these racial differences started to crystallize and, you know, the United States got more diverse because of immigration. Um, But it's been a constant struggle to define what race is on a, on a practical level. I think, you know, you can think about race as the larger collective group that one is a part of. I mean, this is a rough translation, Mm. So like, you know, Black folks, white folks, um, Asian American folks, 
and then of course you could think about race as the way people perceive you, the way you're racialized, as we often say. Let's bring in other dimensions, immigration and sexuality. Now, when we think of gay community in America, mm-hmm. we think of white people, we think of party scene, we think of flamboyancy associated with gay community. And that is, of course, media construct. We see that all the time on TV. And that is not true. Tommy, how did she get in here? Someone said gay Beetlejuice three times and then I magically appeared. Well, we'd love to stay and chat, but we have to go get our tuxes for the prom. Did you say the prom? Yes, it's a big fundraiser at the Gay, Lesbian, Bi, Transgender Center. I'm on the decorations committee. Damn, Kurt, this car is fly. My dad got it for my sweet 16 after I swore to stop wearing form-fitting sweaters that stop at the knee. What he doesn't know doesn't hurt him. Is that your natural hair color? Yeah. See, this is the color I want. This is Damien. He's almost too gay to function. But as someone who is of immigrant identity and who is part of LGBTQ plus community, how do you think immigrant identity and race impact you being part of the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, it's a complicated thing, right? I mean, my entree into this topic was actually very personal. You know, I was in I was at UCLA and I was studying immigration and race. And what I noticed was that a lot of the books and articles that I would read sort of assumed that everyone that they interviewed or talked about was heterosexual. But in my quote unquote real life outside of UCLA, uh, I, I met so many queer, Latino, Asian American, Filipino Americans, um, African Americans who were also gay. And so I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition to what you just described as that stereotype of gay folks being just white. So, you know, here I was in these spaces with black gay men, brown gay men, and then I would go back to school and then read about, quote unquote, the black experience or the Latino experience or the Asian American experience. And I felt like the folks I knew in the gay scene, their experiences were pretty absent from the stuff that I was reading. Um, and so I wanted to dive deeper into that. And of course, I identify as a queer person. I'm, an, I'm from an immigrant family. I'm a son of a Filipino immigrants. And I grew up with no popular representations of, of folks who had my experience. And so the only examples of gay folks I knew were the ones that you described, mostly white men, affluent. And of course, it was also tied to, you know, the AIDS crisis, because I'm a child of the 80s. But, you know, when you when you actually dive into LGBTQ communities, you learn that there's a spectrum of personalities, there's a spectrum of racial backgrounds, um, there's a spectrum of gender expressions, um, and all of those carry value. And, you know, that, that, was, that was a big reason why I wanted to dive into this topic, because I, I knew that, you know, to be a gay person and an immigrant person and a person of color is often framed as a stigmatized identity. But in these communities, I was seeing such richness, despite all the inequalities that they faced. You talk about being son of Filipino immigrants, you're also gay, and you are a person of color. So basically, your research is, in a way, an extension, not in a way, in fact, an extension of your lived experiences. How has your understanding of your identity evolved with the work that you've done and the research that you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have 
experiences that are very similar to some of the people that I interviewed for my new book, Brown and Gay in LA, but by no means was my experience reflected in all the people that I interviewed. So, you know, I learned a lot from doing this research study where I interviewed queer sons of immigrants living in Los Angeles because, you know, some of them grew up in multiracial neighborhoods, some of them grew up in predominantly um, working class Latinx neighborhoods. And it was it was a mixture of experience. Some went to college, some didn't go to college. And so, it, you know, um, despite the fact that everyone sort of falls into that category of, you know, immigrant person of color and, and queer person, there is still a diversity of experience in there, even if there are commonalities in, in the experience. Can you share a few examples with us to help us understand diversity of experiences within that space? Yeah, so I want to share first that there's there's some similarities, right? A lot of these young men grew up with, um, again, that stereotype that you describe of most most of the gay people they knew were mostly white, uh, mostly men, mostly upper middle class. And then they also, you know, given that they're connected to their home countries, a lot of them also remember queer representation in Latino media or Philippine media that portrayed gay people in very caricatured ways, these like hyper-effeminate, which absolutely nothing wrong with being hyper-effeminate, but that was the sole representation there. And also, um, these were often characters who didn't have full lives. So they were sort of there as comic relief. They didn't have lives of their own. They were just there to, to supplement the lives of the, the straight people and, in, in, you know, whatever the family story was. Uh, of course, there's differences, right? So I talked about this recently at a conference where the experience of Filipino American men who are gay and and Latino men who are gay in school can be very different because of the ways that Filipinos are seen as Asian Americans and are sometimes typecast as model minorities. And so for a lot of them, school can be an outlet for them to carve out a space to distract folks from the fact that they might be questioning or gay, but with Latino folks that, you know, a lot of them adopted that same strategy of, of diving into their school lives, but at the same time, uh, they, they encountered a, a particular barrier that's unique to them, which was, you know, Latino students in school are typecast in a very different way from, from that model minority stereotype. You talk about model minority, right? That to me is a myth. There is no such thing as model minority, but you also bring in something very important, which I want to investigate a little more, which is Filipino kids or Filipino immigrants viewed as Asians. Now, you've done some research, which is fascinating and which talks about the intersection of Filipino identity and Latino identity. And you've talked about how there are similarities in terms of religion, there are similarities in terms of last names. And this goes back to Spanish colonialism and colonization of Philippines, which a lot of people don't know it happened, right? Now, when I think of Spanish colonization, I think of integration, right? So if we look at Latin America, Spanish colonizers basically integrated into that culture. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen to the same extent in the Philippines, other than last names and religion. In terms of food, in terms of cultural norms, I don't see that happening to the same degree as it happened in Latin America. And that is why probably people don't perceive people from Philippines as 
Latinos or any association with Latinx identity. So how do you see that intersection and beyond last names and religion, what are other similarities that overlap with Latino culture in Philippines? Yeah, I, you're right. Absolutely. So unlike Puerto Rico or Mexico or any countries in Central and South America, the degree to which the Spanish influence was present in the Philippines was very different. There was a concerted effort in the Philippines to not teach Filipinos the Spanish because they didn't want them to have the same language because that meant they could organize and uprise against the Spanish. And so that was something that the the, the Spanish colonizers didn't impose except to a particular ruling class in the Philippines. In fact, when they were imparting the folks that lived in the Philippines with religion, they learned the native tongues of these different groups, and then they taught Catholicism through that way. When I think about the overlap between Filipinos and Latinos, it's not a perfect circle, right? If this was a Venn diagram, it's not a perfect circle. But there are similarities, like um, in Tagalog, there's a lot of words and that are similar to Spanish. So I'm sitting in a, in Spanish, this is silla, but in Tagalog it would be silla. Uh, the thing that I have my computer on is a table, mesa, which is the same word. Uh, when I walk outside, I'm gonna put on my sapatos. So those are things that overlap. And I think that those in and of itself don't make folks identify with each other. It's the, it's the geographical proximity that I think plays a role. So in the city of Los Angeles, where there's a large number of Filipinos, a large number of Latinos, what ends up happening is that these, these young folks from these communities will just sort of like hear, oh, the way your parents say the days of the week is very similar to the way my parents say the days mm. of the week. Oh, your last name is just like my last name. We go to the same parish. And I think what ends up happening is that because Mexicans and Filipinos are technically in different boxes. They, they need to come up with some explanation for why. And then they're like, oh, it's the Spanish colonialism. So we often think about, um, or folks that aren't from colonized societies tend to think of colonialism as something that's in the past. It's behind us. But growing up as a, as a Filipino and even around a lot of Mexican-American classmates, we would often drop the framework of colonialism in everyday conversation just like mm. in our families with each other because we were like oh casually folks would be like oh you were colonized by the spanish too not to ro not to romanticize it by any means because it's violent bloody and you know genocidal but it was it was the fact that like i was familiar with colonial frameworks as a kid long before i studied it in like undergrad and grad school Absolutely. I can totally relate to that. I grew up in Pakistan, right? So Pakistan was a British colony up until 1947, quite recently. And there are remnants of British colonialism in Pakistani society, whether it's colorism, whether it's colonizers language, which we grew up speaking. And a lot of people in Pakistan speak English. So I totally get it. But I want to circle back to your book, To Be Brown and Gay in L.A., First, I'll ask you to tell us a little bit about the book itself, but why this title? Don't you think it's limiting to folks living in LA? Uh, why did you choose the title? What was the thought process behind that? Yeah, that's the old title. The new title shortens it a little bit. It's just Brown and Gay in LA. That's a good question. I, I experienced this with my first book where 
the Latinos of Asia where it was focused on LA too. And I am not one to read reviews of my book that often, but if I ever get a negative review, it's usually from someone that's like, this book is just about folks in LA and I live in <laughs> Chicago. How dare he? And what's funny is that my, my rationale for centering it in LA is to be honest, very practical. I was in grad school. I was getting my PhD. I was in school for so long. I didn't have a lot of money. And so there's not, a, if you don't have a lot of money, you can't really extend your research project to, right. to broader context. So originally, actually, with my first book, I wanted to do something where I looked at Filipino identity in like LA, Hawaii, and New Jersey. So three different racial contexts. But, you know, in academia, the study of Filipinos wasn't necessarily that valued, at least not valued enough where folks were throwing money at me to study this topic. And at some point I was like, I need to graduate. And so, um, you know, I went with the low hanging fruit um, and I'm from L.A. and I have a deep love of L.A. And a lot of writers say this. You can really, really tease out the universal from from honing in in the particular. Um, sometimes. Yeah, so sometimes when you do too much of a broad stroke, the study becomes a little too on the encyclopedia level and, and you really can't dive deep into the nuances of an experience. And I thought of this in a similar way. Full disclosure, same thing. When I started this book on queer sons of immigrants in LA, I had big ambitions. I, I thought about interviewing queer women, trans, trans children of immigrants, um, folks who are non-binary. Um, and then, of course, I thought about expanding it beyond Los Angeles. Maybe I'll do a different city. Like LA is very urban. I'll pick a more like rural area. Uh, but I was also a new college professor that was working on getting tenure. And again, like it's not like I was rolling in the dough to do this research. And so on a very practical level, I was balancing like having to do my job, pay the bills with wanting to write this new story that's 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 the practical reason but i think like there is also a part of me that is so deeply connected to los angeles and um for me all of my books are also kind of a love letter to the experiences of los angelinos that get forgotten in popular portrayals of la so when you think about la and hollywood movies it's often like the beach or west la or like the the glitzy celebrity scene, but there's a whole nother LA that I grew up with both, you know, the Filipino community and the queer people of color community that I just, I'm just so in love with that I wanted to um, amplify in, in this book. If you're here, I know you're really interested in change. So I am excited to tell you about Undistracted a weekly podcast from my friends at Meteor, hosted by activist and educator Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Every week, Brittany takes a very personal look at the news from an intersectional feminist viewpoint, which you know I like. Brittany talks to each week's newsmakers about the change they strive for every day. So you'll hear from folks like Anita Hill, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Congresswoman Cori Bush, Tracy Ellis Ross, Tarana Burke, and more. Plus, she'll catch you up on the latest untrending news. Stuff you might have missed that you definitely need to know. 
Undistracted comes out weekly on Thursdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Pocket Casts, Stitcher or Odyssey. And you can find The Meteor at The Meteor on Instagram. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I wanted better gut health and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great and also wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now I have been on it for a few weeks and I love it. Fun fact, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste and I actually look forward to it each morning. With just one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's how I take it. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. What should readers expect from this book? Are there any insights you can share with us? Yeah, I think what should readers expect? That's a new question. I (laughs) I haven't gotten that one. (laughs) I, you know, for a very long time, I was scared to write this book because I started the, I started the book in like 2011. The first interview I conducted was maybe 2011, 2012. And as I was doing the the study, there were all these metrics of progress, like same-sex marriage became legalized. And then, um, so I thought, oh, is anyone even going to care about this by the time this book is published? We're like moving in the right direction. As we all know, (laughs) a lot of terribleness has happened that has reminded me that we need to talk about these stories. Even if I know this story really intimately, there's a lot of folks who are just completely unaware. I think what, I think what folks what I hope will, folks will get this, from this book is a deep level of empathy for people in their family or their communities who are queer. I think sometimes when I encounter my straight friends and family, there's often this air of like, oh, we accept you, right? Even though there's this era of we accept you, there's not often a reckoning of the traumatic experiences that queer people have actually had. So you can accept me at when I'm age 24, but what about what happened to me between the ages of like six to 23 when I was a very like flamboyant young boy, very effeminate to like, you know, starting to date men. Um, There was a lot of period there where I, I, I had to live that experience in my own head and alone. And I also think too that acceptance is not enough. It's this this idea that, yeah, you can accept your gay relatives, queer family members and friends, but 
you got to do more work than that. You got to create an environment where queer history, queer culture gets the chance to be centered. Like I spent my whole life watching your whatever basketball games and football games and not saying anything. Why don't we put on some, you know, RuPaul's drag race or figure skating and let's all watch it together and, and talk about like queer relationships. There's no reason why we shouldn't do that. Um, the other thing I hope to get is uh, I, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but <laughs> I, I really, I really like the ending of the book. I, I'll say that's a little teaser because I do think that oftentimes with any minoritized population, we focus on two things, the tragedy of it or the triumph of it. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. And I would love for readers to develop an appreciation of all the labor and choreography that happens for these young men to just exist. And I think that that's not a specific experience to queer sons of immigrants. I think women experience this. I think disabled folks experience this where people just aren't able to look at the world from their lens. Like men can't, like are unwilling to look at the world from the lens of a woman. Um, Cisgender folks are unwilling to look at the world through the lens of a trans person. And so I just hope that the book becomes a little bit of an exercise uh, for you to practice decentering yourself and actually experiencing what the world is like from a different lens. But for like readers who are also gay and POC, my hope is that the book will help them feel seen. Um, I like that. Yeah. In my first book, I didn't anticipate that people would react so emotionally to just being able to see their story on a written page. So I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. It makes a huge difference because then you feel like you exist and people see that existence. Something that a lot of us at the intersection of race, identity, and even religion experience in America. But Anthony, I want to talk a little bit about women who are in same-sex relationship. Now, granted, your research is limited to gay men because you didn't have the financial bandwidth to include other folks. But do you have any insights into how that may be different from experiences of gay men? Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I interviewed a few queer women and beyond just the, the financial constraints of being able to expand the study, what I started to learn is that me interviewing queer women what the, the conversation that emerged from that was very different than me interviewing queer men who, you know, where we had the same identity. And so I just came to this point where I was realizing that um, the data that was coming out of it just wasn't as good as compared to if I was a queer woman doing the interview. And I didn't want to like dishonor the experiences of, of queer daughters of immigrants by mistelling the story based off data that I didn't think is as on, on the nose as with queer men. But to your question, I think there are similarities, like the familial pressures to have to get married and have kids in the traditional way, fulfill the family's like immigrant American dreams. But I think there's also differences. So if you ever go to any of these public gay spaces like West Hollywood or the Castro or or the Hill, the Hillcrest in San Diego, these are 
gay spaces and they're they're supposed to be for the gay community but overwhelmingly these are spaces for gay men and so the ways in which queer women build community cultivate community looks very different than that of gay men so with gay men there's the bars and the clubs there's a lot of the centers which which um you know if i'm if i'm honest really feel like they're for men and so if i if i was a queer woman uh, i would i would at, at come to the point where I, those spaces are just not satisfying and i would i would find ways to cultivate connections elsewhere what do you think needs to happen to make those spaces more inclusive and holistic yeah that's a good question i think that there's been attempts by these some of these clubs to have nights designated for queer women mm. but i think that that's not enough i remember there was this one club i used to go to back in the day in orange county funny enough called oz and this was a club where i felt like there was equal representation of queer women and queer men and it was it was wonderful i loved it um and so i think that for the most part the groups are pretty siloed and i just want to acknowledge that just because gay men are marginalized for being gay that doesn't exclude them for being sexist there's are misogynist and so right you know i think that's an important topic that needs to be confronted among gay men is the misogyny and and, and sexism that can emerge even with a minority group like them i am so glad that you brought up that and we could have a whole another discussion around that but that's a very important point to bring up Anthony I want to circle back to something that you just said about familial pressure especially in immigrant communities now the way i understand those dynamics are that at least from what i've seen what i've heard is that immigrant parents are less accepting or less receptive versus non-immigrant is that a myth or is that true and why I think that that's a perception. So hmm. one thing I realized when I interviewed a lot of the the young men, when I say young men, I mean they were in their 20s, so they weren't like kids or anything, but I think that that's that's a common perception that communities of color including immigrant families are more unaccepting and less tolerant of of queerness, right? And I don't necessarily want to embrace that narrative because there's all sorts of examples of of white people of different religious backgrounds or regional settings that are completely not accepting in the same way but it doesn't get framed as negatively as say like immigrants are less accepting of their gay kids i do think that there's a different complication when it comes to being gay and a child of immigrants which is as a child of immigrants and you're and if you're gay you're navigating multiple arenas you're thinking about your family so a lot of my a lot of times when i talk about this work i'll meet other um folks from immigrant families and they say things like you know i went to college but that wasn't just for me that was for my family right they often frame their experience in the United States as a collective experience. They can't be themselves without bringing their families along. So they're navigating family pressures. Uh they're also navigating pressures as maybe they're the 
only person of color in a particular setting, whether it's school or work, they're navigating um, family that don't even live in the United States. Even if you're born in the U.S., lived your whole life in the U.S., it's still the case that the the family pressures from the the home country can really um, bleed into your life as well. So that gets really complicated, and I think that what what is true about what makes what what is true is that these um, queer sons of immigrants, queer daughters of immigrants, are navigating so many different contexts where sexuality and queerness is defined differently they have to navigate it in, in very nuanced ways and it can get a little um hectic i should say <laughs> In terms of the process of coming out, especially for parents to be part of that, I feel like parents find some resonance in it, right? So there is this process of learning something new, learning something alongside your kids. What are your thoughts on the process itself and how do you view that in terms of it being a strength for parents as well as kids? Yeah, I think that that's a really wonderful question. So uh, I can think of a few examples from the the people that I interviewed where the parents came a whole distance. They they they, tra- they they traversed a lot of distance from the moment they found out their kid was gay to to the present day. And I think that you know, when I think about some of the stories I heard about parents being unaccepting or, or rejecting their kids or just being really disparaging or, 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 or even violent to their kids. Um, that, those are really tough experiences for kids to, to have. What I realized, though, is that the presence of, of a gay child in one's family forces parents, immigrant parents, to really confront some of the prejudices and, and and stereotypes that they have because all of a sudden they can't hold those stereotypes because they're the kid that they grew up with is part of that category that you were once stereotyping and so I think it's a it's a good exercise for immigrant parents to to have their own coming out process and to realize that there are actually similarities between what it's like to be an immigrant and what it's like to be queer it's this narrative that that emerged that you know some of the some of the men that i interviewed said oh you know my experience of coming out as a gay man was kind of like my parents experience coming to this country you know they would they imagined a better life on the other side they talked to people on the other side and did their research before they made the decision and when they made the decision to come out or to migrate it's very very scary but over time they realize that was a good decision and you know they can't turn back because you know there's a lot of wonderful things that happen when you make that journey and i think that journey is also applicable to non-immigrant parents right because those biases those stereotypes exist within a lot of non-immigrant communities as well oh absolutely absolutely yeah I think that 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 narrative about like white families being more accepting of gay kids that's something that often gets circulated in the black community as well there's this stereotype that black folks are less accepting or more homophobic and 
I think what we got to remember, and there's a there's a sociology colleague that I have at Boston University named Katie Connell that talks about how that whole idea that like white families or white people are more enlightened about gay issues and then yeah. um, <laughs> immigrant black uh, black folks are, are less progressive. That's just another way to reinforce the inequality between whites and non-whites. Whites are now all of a sudden morally superior because right. they're, they're enlightened uh, about the fact that like gay people are okay whereas the backwards people of color are still like oppressing right. their gay members of their communities <laughs> absolutely and there is an overlap between white and immigrant right something uh -huh. that gets lost in conversation there are european immigrants there are immigrants from other backgrounds who are white and sometimes this notion of all immigrants are of certain ethnicity or certain cultural background, that is a myth too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we live in a country where people hear the word immigrant and the only thing they can think of is Mexican. When there's like hundreds of countries that send people to this to this place, including our neighbors at the north, Canada. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And this goes back to so many stereotypes that exist in America, so many misconceptions that exist, you know, and our job is to just deconstruct and break down each one story at a time, right? Mm -hmm. Anthony, I'm curious, I'm sure you've done a number of interviews, but is there a particular question that you really wanted somebody to ask you and they haven't yet? Yeah, I... I... That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think one thing that I would like to be asked is what would a story about gay sons of immigrants or queer people of color look like that didn't center the tragedy or the rejection? I think that... Um, I'm in sociology, and so it's a it's a discipline that's predicated on studying social problems and social ills. And a big reason I've spent more recent years of my career diving into creative writing, fiction, is because I'm kind of sick of people looking at me as a queer person or a Filipino person and assuming that my experience of racism and homophobia is all that is my entire life experience. And so I, I would, I think if I had to rewind and write or write a sequel to this book, I would just write about the mundane everyday experiences of minority groups. Because the truth is when I'm with my other queer friends, we're not spending our days talking about racism and homophobia. We're talking about what we saw on, like what we're binging on Netflix, what song is hot, what foods we want to eat, who has the best coffee shops. Like that, that takes a way more airtime than us talking about racism and homophobia and, and inequality. Not that those things are unimportant, but that's not everything. That's not the entirety of our experience. Do you think it has anything to do with human, I guess, not capacity, but inclination in a way to consume trauma that's not theirs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think that absolutely. 
when you think about what makes news stories, right? What gets you into college? What gets you into grad school? What gets you those diversity fellowships? It's this exercise in just deploying the most traumatic experiences of your life. Like I can't talk in my college essays or my you know diversity fellowship essays. I'm not going to talk about my obsession with figure skating and gymnastics because I know that's not going to get me the grant. Um, and so I, I end up learning somehow that I have to talk about, oh, these, you know, this unfortunate, unfair thing. And I do that because you got to figure out a way to propel your career forward. But it does, it comes at a toll as well. You know, I could tell you so many stories with regards to that being a Muslim woman. If I talk about love and relationships, if I talk about my motherhood journey, if I talk about what I binge on Netflix, if I write articles about that, nobody's interested in publishing, right? Oh But my the gosh. minute I talk about my Muslim identity, race and, you know, my skin color and all, yes, that that's when people are interested. So you're absolutely right. But how do we move away from that? How do we move past that? Yeah. I think that there's a big problem with the way cultural industries are set up. And there's a lot of folks who think this, this isn't my idea by any means, but in publishing, the majority of editors and, and, and are white. And so the ability for them to green light people of color stories is based on the way they understand how race works, not the way actual people of color understand it. So they end up relying on, they end up, sort of green lighting stories that focus on the trauma or the negative aspects, not the Netflix right, binge, right. Binge, <laughs> binging. On the flips, on, uh, in a similar way, TV showrunners are also very white and they're the ones who, casting directors are also very white. And it's often been the case, I have a friend, Nancy Yen, who talks about how um, casting directors will be the ones who will tell people of color that they're not acting like the the correct, they're not acting the correct way. You're not acting Chinese, even though, a white white casting director will be like you're not acting chinese to the chinese american actor it's 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 a hot mess and so to answer your question about how can we move the needle i think that we just need more um folks of color in those positions of power i think that those industries need to be open to taking risks because all of them are saying like oh it's not going to pay off it's not gonna, it's going to be uh we're going to lose money But if, if there's anything we've witnessed from people falling in love with Squid Game or people falling in love with um, Parasite and everything everywhere all at once, that's an immigration, first generation, second generation story. And it's, and it's making huge waves across the country. So I think that those are the two things, Hi hire more execs that are from communities of color Um, and take chances on POC stories and, and let yourself get surprised. Absolutely. So in the end, Anthony, if you were to define America in a word, a sentence, a phrase, how would you do that? America is complicated. And I say that because I think about some of the economic mobility experiences in my own family because my family, my parents, their siblings were able to migrate to this United, to, to the United States from the Philippines. Just the obvious things, having a home, 
having a having a uh, a car, having a job, uh, being able to have leisure experiences, being able to use your excess income to extra income to pay for family that is back home, pay for their college education, pay for their, you know, housing expenses because they can't afford it. But on the flip side, I also think about the reason those countries are so are such are struggling in the first place is because of the United States and the violence, the colonial violence that they impose on these countries, the way they mine these countries for labor and resources. So I always, every every year, I feel like my relationship with the United States gets a little bit more complicated because it's a it's a contradiction. And I think, you know, when July Fourth is coming, is 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 happens every year, and I. I sometimes i'm i'm a bit floored by the patriotism that happens without without any sort of reflection on what this how this country got to be so rich yeah that's such an incredible answer because this is something that i struggle with a lot and especially around holidays like 4th of july even memorial day right so i was like why aren't we celebrating people who, and activists who are working so hard to prevent wars um, rather than celebrating people who go to war, right? So you're right. We, we need to rethink a lot of what we value and how we celebrate things. This was so good, Anthony, and I'm so glad we were able to connect. In the end, your book comes out in September, but do you have a favorite bookstore or a place where people should go and buy or is it okay if they bought it on Amazon yeah I want to shout out a couple independent bookstores that I love and that if that's okay yeah absolutely so I want first one on the list is Belcanto bookstore in Long Beach it's a Filipino owned bookstore independent bookstore in Long Beach California I also want to shout out Cafe Con Libros which is a Latino minority owned bookstore in Pomona and Cellar Door Books, which is another indie bookstore in Riverside. And of course, in LA, you can't not shout out Skylight Books, which is one of the biggest independent bookstores in, in Los Angeles. And of course, um, let me not forget Isowan, which is a Black-owned bookstore in Lemaire Park. So those are my five uh, bookstores. Order from any one of them. I would encourage you to do that because... Um, yeah, uh, the books, independent bookstores are the ones who are cultivating these communities of readers and writers, particularly for folks that get ignored by the publishing industry. Right. Thank you so much, Anthony. This was wonderful. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. I hope we get to chat again soon. What an incredible conversation. Don't forget to buy Anthony's book and do some introspection, some reflection on how we approach holidays. How do we celebrate holidays? How do we approach conversations? What narratives exist? And what's the difference between perception and reality? Today's episode was written by Ashley Linuza. Produced by me, Sadia Khan, and Kinza Muzahir. And our amazing editor is Bronte Cook. Until next time, take care.